This is the Visible Hand, a podcast about organizations, economics, and management. My name is Jordi Blanes Vidal, and I am an associate professor at the Department of Management, London School of Economics. My guest today is Julius Vetz, who is an economist at the University of Cambridge and a fellow of Christ College. Today, we're going to talk about her paper, Persistent Overconfidence and Biased Memory, Evidence from Managers, uh, which is co-authored with David Huffman and Colin Raymond. Uh, hello, Julia. Welcome to the program. Hi, Jordi. Thanks very much. So, Julia, can you start by telling us what the paper does? We study store managers and we show that they're systematically overconfident about their workplace performance and that they have selective memory of past performance and that these two things go hand in hand. This evidence supports the theory of motivated beliefs. The idea is that people derive utility from certain beliefs. For us, that's the most important aspect of the paper. We have put together field evidence which allows us to better understand what people's utility functions look like. Great, Julia. So uh, three things here. Managers are overconfident. Uh, the second thing is this overconfidence is persistent. That is, it uh, survives even in the presence of repeated feedback. Third thing, and as you say, most important, the mechanism through which managers manage to remain at their confident is that they engage in this type of motivated beliefs. Um, in selective recollection, so that they remember only the memories that support uh, their overconfidence. You say that your study is studying managers. Can you tell us what is the work setting that you actually study? What is happening in that work setting? Uh, absolutely. So our data are from a chain of uh, food and drink stores, and each um, store has a store manager. And it's their um, attitude towards their performance that we study, the beliefs about their job performance. In this company, um, there are a couple of important things. The manager's performance is measured in a very precise way. Uh, that's the first important thing. The second important thing is that managers get a lot of feedback on performance. So they get a lot of information, and this allows us to really do this study. It's also quite important that managers' bonus payment depends on performance. So, and it depends uh, on performance in, in several ways. One of them is that a substantial proportion of their final salary uh, is made by the bonus that depends on performance. And the second thing, if I understand it well, is that uh, the difference between doing well and doing badly has substantial consequences uh, in terms of the bonus. Is that right? What happens in this firm is that uh, salaries re uh, managers receive a salary uh, that that is not performance related, and on top of it, they receive a, a performance related bonus. And this bonus is paid quarterly uh, based on the the manager's performance in that quarter. The way that the, the firm measures performance is that um, they have several measures of store performance that they care about, the main ones being profit, service, uh, and sales growth. And they aggregate this into one measure. At the end of each quarter, all managers are ranked on this measure of performance. 
And the bonus depends on the manager's ranking. So this is a relative performance scheme. So what is the data that you have to conduct your study? We uh, combine two types of data. Uh, first, we have historical data on uh, manager performance uh, over um, several years, over eight and a half years. And the second <clears throat> are the data that we collected ourselves. This is um, by conducting what sometimes in the literature uh, people would refer to as the lab in the field study. So um, we went to see the managers and we conducted um, a series of lab experiments with them. And what information do you get out of these lab experiments? Because this is going to be critical in terms of the measures that uh, are going to be part of the analysis, no? Absolutely, absolutely. So um, we were interested in studying overconfidence and motivated beliefs in this setting because we thought the setting was very good for that. And we might come on a bit later to why we think the setting is really good. Um, so how did we decide to study overconfidence? Well, uh, we, when we, we went to see the managers and we conducted, as I said, a series of uh, lab experiments with them. But perhaps lab experiment is a little bit of a big word for what I'm about to describe. In fact, we collected data using um, perhaps a more accurate way of putting it is an incentivized survey. So uh, we asked the managers to predict their performance in the next company-wide tournament at the end of the quarter that was running when we did the experiments. Uh, we paid the managers for getting the answers right. More precisely, we asked them, at the end of this quarter, where do you expect your rank to be? Which quintile? So from uh, bottom 20% to top 20%. And oh, we will, we will pay you um, $22 for getting uh, the quintile correctly. Of course, managers knew that um, we would get the actual data uh, after the end of the quarter and we would be able to compare their prediction with the performance that they actually achieved. So this was the first exercise we've done with them. And, and the second? So you have a second measure. To link this to the idea of motivated beliefs, we all also collected data on managers' recall of their past performance. So we asked them to tell us how they ranked in the last tournament for which the data were available. Uh, and again, we paid them for getting, getting this right. Just like with predictions, the managers knew that we actually had the data already and that we will be comparing their answers to the actual data that we've gotten from the company. So the data is actually then very easy to summarize. You have the actual performance of the managers over time. You have um, their response to a question of how well they will do in the future in terms of what quintile they will uh, perform it in the future. And you also have a question of how well they did in the previous quarter. And the presumption is that 
because you are paying them for getting it right. The answers are given to you truthfully. How do you use this data to, to get uh, to start with um, to answer the first question, which is, are these managers uh, overconfident on average? Absolutely. That's an excellent summary of the data that we've got. So first of all, we, we um, try to uh, analyze the predictions of the managers to see whether managers are overconfident. Probably the first result that we may want to um, talk about is how many managers put themselves into different quintiles. So we, we know that by definition of the quintile, we should expect 20% in each quintile. What actually happens is about 30% of managers put themselves into a top quintile and only 20%, sorry, only 10% of managers put themselves in the bottom quintile. So we have some evidence of overconfidence in this without using any other data. But just, just to be clear, this, this initial uh, evidence, if you want, shall we call it descriptive evidence, that uh, the distribution of predictions about their own performance is skewed to the right relative to the actual distribution of performance. Um, so this descriptive evidence, this is quite common. This has been observed in many settings. In fact, this even has a name, the Lake Wobegon effect, uh, after a fictional town in which all children are regarded, probably by their families, as being above average. We know that not everybody <laughs> can be above average by definition of what average is. So this, this element uh, has been observed in many settings, but you claim that just this descriptive evidence is not by itself sufficient to uh, conclusively show that these managers are overconfident. And I am, I am very interested as why is it that this descriptive evidence, compelling as it as it looks, is not is not sufficient to prove overconfidence. That, that's that's a great question, and um, it's going to be linked to the question why we decided to use these particular data for for this paper. Um, imagine if we asked Robinson Crusoe whilst he was on an, uh, on an island, uh, so how many coconuts a day do you collect? He'd give us a number and then we say, what do you think uh, relative to everywhere else in the world? How, how high is this? Um, he is probably going to be wrong um, when comparing the number of his coconuts to the rest of the world, simply because he's never had any information about what um, other people are collecting in terms of coconuts. So just from observing one uh, a data point, uh, it's very hard to say whether somebody is overconfident or not. Um, the estimations are going to be noisy and when the data are um, missing, people uh, will tend to draw wrong conclusions. Not only that, um, economists have shown that even when some data exists, if these data are not very good, if the information, if the signals that we get are not very good, they might generate what people have referred to as rational overconfidence. So something that looks like overconfidence, uh, but is actually a result of standard Bayesian updating with signals that have a particular 
let's say, not very informative structure without going to details. So this is a paper by Jean-Pierre Benoit and Juan Dubra, 2011. So you have given two arguments there. The first one is we have asked Robinson Crusoe and he may have very little evidence. And the second is like the, the rational overconfidence of Benoit and Dubra. I, I, I would argue that in this case, the second argument is the most compelling because in your paper, you are not asking Robinson Crusoe, you are asking 230 Robinson Crusoe's. And we would expect that some of them make mistakes in the positive direction, others make mistakes in the negative direction. We wouldn't expect a positive bias on average, but yet this is what you find. So the, the, the most compelling argument has to be the second. And I think that the second is, is a very compelling argument. So if, if I understood what you said, the idea here is that the signals that these managers receive are not symmetric. That is, there are some signals that are positive, uh, but are relatively weak in the sense that they are not very informative, but agents are very likely to get them. Then there are some signals that are negative. They're very rare, but conditional on receiving that negative signal, the manager really knows that he's very incompetent. If, if in this world, in a world with this information structure, um, after the initial 50-50 prior of managers being competent or incompetent, after some time, a little bit of time, some managers, most managers will have received positive signals. Very few will have received negative signals. This implies that most managers will think of themselves as above average. And this is a fully Bayesian world. It's just the result of the information structure being being very skewed. Um, is that is that the right way to think about this? Yes, yes, absolutely. So um, in order to generate the sort of effects that Benoit and Dubra are talking about, the information structure needs to have this property that you just described. It basically gives people the idea um, that that they're good, even if they're not. Uh, rational Bayesian uh, people, agents. E exactly. So you need to have quite a precise signal structure um, to generate this effect. Now, um, uh, Benoit and Dubra and um, uh, following up on their work, um, Stephen Burks and co-authors propose a, a test uh, for whether the degree of overconfidence is sufficient to overcome the Benoit and Dubert critique. The idea being that some overconfidence is so extreme that uh, this explanation uh, cannot apply. Now, I, I will be completely uh, honest. Our data, um, uh, when we test our data we can this way, we cannot reject that um, uh, ben, that potentially overconfidence could be generated using um, uh, Benoit and Dubra process if the signal structure was the way they describe it. Because although our managers are overconfident as a group, it's not as extreme as would be required to reject their theory. Instead, uh, we um, ask a question about the signal structure. Because we observe um, the feedback that the managers get, uh, we know what the signal structure is. So we ask the question, is it reasonable 
for the managers, given the signal structure that uh, is in front of them, to uh, predict the way they've predicted for us. So that's great. That takes me to my next question, which is how do you use this data about past performance to test more persuasively for the presence of overconfidence? We do this in two ways. Um, first of all, uh, we say, well, um, let's have a look at our managers. The median manager in our data set uh, has been with the firm for two and a half years. So they would have seen 10 of these quarterly tournaments um, and a lot of other feedback. They get also weekly feedback on how they're doing in the tournament. Um, but our data set are these quarterly data. So what we can do is estimate what managers should be predicting based on the data that they've seen on of their own performance. And we do this in two ways. One is we construct the best possible model we can as econometricians to predict uh, um, their performance. We play with various models until we sort of do, we do a bit of model selection until we get the, the best one. And the other way we can do it is using a structural model. We estimate a, a model based on the historical data of manager performance, which tells us what the managers should be predicting given the data they've seen. And then we compare managers' predictions about their performance to the predictions of the model. And here's roughly what we find. About a third of managers predict accurately. Another, so just under a fifth of managers are underconfident. And almost half of managers are overconfident. So even when we take into account all the data we've seen, we find that uh, the largest group is the are the overconfident managers, and it's much larger than the underconfident managers. So as you were saying earlier, the errors are not at all symmetric. So you put yourself in um, the position of the agent of Benoit and Dupra. That is the agent that takes all the signals in the past to create conditional these signals that could be skewed, could be bigger, smaller, whatever, the best possible base and prediction. And now you say, well, how do the actual predictions of the managers compare to these optimal, to these base and predictions? And you find that even relative to these base and predictions, the agents, half of them seem to be overconfident. One thing that I thought was quite interesting looking at these uh, base and predictions that you create is that the prediction is not uh, based on past performance, that there will be exactly 20% of the managers in each quantile. Uh, instead, the optimal predictions deviate sometimes a little bit from this uh, 20%. And you don't mention this in the paper, but I thought that this in some sense validates the critique of Benoit and Dupra, that, that based, on, based on past evidence, uh, the predictions don't have to be completely unbiased. 
Absolutely. What we see uh, when we do our best possible predictions is that we get numbers that are sl slightly deviate from 20% in each quintile. And that basically tells us that predicting is hard. Uh, the data um, that we have are um, in some ways quite good data. It is predictive data. Um, we might come on to this later. So past performance does predict um, future outcomes, but it's still noisy. So you're not going to get exactly 20%. I think what's um, important uh, in um, differentiating our signal structure from the signal structure that you need to assume for Benoit's and Dubris to uh, critique to go through is that when we do our regressions, our predictions based on past data, we do not find overconfidence. So there are deviations from 20%, but they're not deviations in the overconfident direction. Okay, so we have finished the, the first piece of evidence that you wanted to show. Agents are overconfident. Now you have also some evidence to show that agents are persistently overconfident. Uh, what is that evidence? So I think the way we argue that the overconfidence that we find is persistent is twofold. First, um, we have um, managers who have quite a lot of experience here. So if they're experienced, if they have been in the firm for a long time, then the Bayesian um, model says they should learn what their performance is. So we split the sample into managers who are more experienced, have been with the firm for more than two years, um, and those who are less experienced, and see whether we find differences in overconfidence. And turns out that the answer to this question is no. And that's, that suggests to us that the overconfidence persists, that it persists um, even though the managers are, are more experienced. I should add here that our, um, our setup um, is not ideal for studying persistence because we only have a cross-sectional snapshot. So in the ideal world, if we could do whatever we wanted to, if we were gods, we would go and um, uh, do the surveys regularly with, with the managers. But um, in, what we have is only one snapshot. So we have to uh, think about persistence in slightly different ways. E experience is, is one way of thinking about persistence. I would say that um, experience is an important part of persistence here, but it's not sufficient. I think it's the fact that these managers are bombarded with the information at every corner, basically, in their in their work, which generates uh, the persistence. So it's not just that they're experienced, um, but also that during that experience, they've seen lots and lots of information. So they're overconfident in the face of facts. So we have discussed the first two main findings, but as you said at the beginning, uh, one of the most interesting aspects of the paper is in studying the actual mechanism through which managers manage to remain overconfident, uh, even in the presence of repeated negative signals, or at least for, for some of them. What is the evidence that you have uh, to shed light on this mechanism? 
Perhaps at this point, it would be helpful to talk about the theory a little bit. A lot of the motivation for our paper comes from the theoretical work of Roland Benabou and Jean Tirol, uh, such as their paper in 2002, on motivated beliefs. The idea behind motivated beliefs is that agents have beliefs entering their utility function. For one reason or another, maybe it's instrumental, it helps them do something, or maybe it's hedonic, they just like thinking of themselves in a certain way. But beliefs enter utility function. Um, this is what Benabou and Tyrol call the demand for overconfidence, because the um, our self-perception is in the utility function, a demand for overconfidence is generated. On the other hand, um, there is a, a, a second question that um, Benabou and Tirol explore, which is, um, okay, demand for overconfidence is all good and well, but if you're facing facts, how, can, how is it possible that you remain overconfident? They call it the supply of overconfidence. So what mechanism allows to, um, for overconfidence to persist? And their conjecture um, is that it may be selective memory. And this is how we test um, the idea of uh, motivated beliefs in our paper. This is because you have data on memory. That was the third part of the data that you mentioned at the beginning. You ask them how well you perform in the past, and therefore you are capturing how well they are able to remember uh, their past performance. Is that correct? Yes, that's exactly right. That's exactly right. So the um, the signature prediction of motivated beliefs models um, about overconfidence is that overconfidence and selective memory go hand in hand. So the answer that um, the model by uh, Benabou and Tirol gave to the question of what is the mechanism is that people... Um, may still be Bayesian, but they use signals that uh, for updating selectively. Some signals that they don't like, uh, that might undermine their self-perception, they're going to suppress. And that's exactly the proposition that we test with um, our data on manager recall of their performance. So what do you find? So remember, we asked the managers uh, to tell us what rank they got in the last tournament, in the last quarterly tournament they've seen. No, the managers gave us these answers. First of all, we paid for them. Second, they gave us these answers knowing full well that we actually had the data uh, to compare. So there was no point in sort of impressing us. What do we find? First of all, we find that there is a robust correlation between the um, actual performance and recalled performance. That, that's good. That means that uh, managers are not throwing some random numbers at us. More importantly, I think we find three features in the data. The first feature is that the managers who have done well remember very well how they've done. They don't make any errors. The second feature is that um, uh, when managers don't do so well, they start making errors in a recall. And the final feature, the third feature, is that these errors are predominantly in one direction, in the direction of remembering better rank than they, what they actually got in the tournament. So if I understand this well, this means that the ones 
who don't feel that have any need to suppress to suppress uh, the bad memories, don't suppress them. They remember perfectly well. But the ones who did badly have this demand for these motivated beliefs, and therefore they manage to distort their memories, and, and typically in a positive direction, remembering that they did better than they actually did. Is that correct? That's right. That's the interpretation um, that we are going to put on the data. I would say that to um, draw that conclusion, we need one more step. Uh, so far, all I've told you is that as a group, these managers are overconfident. And as a group, they um, when managers don't do well, they forget bad outcomes and replace them with sort of more rosy memories. But what we really want to know for the theory of motivated beliefs to stand up is that there is a link at an individual level between suppressing negative memories and being overconfident. So that's the third part of our analysis. We uh, put the two uh, manager answers together and we find that um, there is indeed a relationship that people who have um, more flattering memories are more likely to be overconfident. And that uh, is the final step in us saying, look, this is motivated beliefs. One way to think about this last piece of evidence is that it makes sense in conjunction with the others. Because if I think of this last piece of evidence by itself, imagine a world without any overconfidence. Just people remember randomly. If managers base their predictions about the future, partly at least on how well they remember they did in the past, it's natural to find that those who remember something less positive will be less likely to be overconfident in the future. And others that remember something very positive will be more likely to make a prediction that is overconfident in the future. So this piece of evidence, uh, it seems to be really critical, but the interpretation should be in conjunction with the others. Is that is that correct? Yes, I, I agree with that. Um, I think if we were in the world where managers sort of were not overconfident and randomly remembered better things than actual if we had a Bayesian updating model based on memory, which is not normally the model that economists use, but it's a very intuitive model, then indeed we would generate um, sort of overconfident prediction. I guess then the question would arise, why are memories systematically uh, going in one direction all the time? In our case, I think it was very important to find this link at an individual level because we uh, only have a snapshot of, um, uh, of man managers at one point in time. Suppose that our memory data, okay, it's um, the memories are clearly rosy in our data, but suppose it, it came about by fluke. And in fact, the managers are perfectly rational and are basing their predictions on Bayesian updating, using all the past quarter's information accurately, and this was just one fluke. Then we would not find the connection between the two. Okay, so we find that managers are overconfident, they are persistently overconfident, and the mechanism through which they manage to remain underconfident is the one that you have uh, highlighted, motivated beliefs, and so on. Why is it important to isolate 
this mechanism or to provide evidence in favor of this mechanism from a welfare or, or policy perspective? So to, to me, it gets at one of the more important questions that we as economists might want to answer, which is what's in people's utility functions? And depending on what's in people's utility functions, or rather what is in the people's utility functions critically affects their behavior. Whether um, people have motivated beliefs or not will be really important for how they behave. Our study is particularly focused on the way people process information. So one implication of what we find is that people don't process information in the way that um, the standard economic model suggests. We all know sort of and can tell anecdotes about CEOs and politicians who choose a course of action and then their ego gets so tied up with it, they ignore all the information that might suggest that their approach is actually not working. And this is this the sort of thing that uh, we're showing here. So one implication is for feedback. How do you give people feedback? How will you give people feedback? I think this is a great question for future research. Um, I think one one very interesting aspect of the um, model by Benabou and Tirol is that it actually has multiple equilibria, which suggests that sometimes people get into um, the uh, overconfidence, um, well, I wouldn't say trap, because it can actually be beneficial for their welfare or or detrimental, depending a little bit on how um, on the specifics. And other times they may not be in it. And I think a, a very big uh, empirical question is what determines this? Uh, Julia, thank you for coming to the program. Jordi, thank you very much for having me. I have been speaking with Julia Svets, and this episode has been produced by Anderson Tan. Music and logo by Etana Blanesiso. Check this feed for more episodes of The Visible Hand.